Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is Episode 8, Mepolizumab, or placebo, for eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis. This was published in 2017 in the New England Journal of Medicine by the Mepolizumab Study Team. The authors were Gleich et al. For background, EGPA is a disease that generally has a decent prognosis, but has a lot of flares. In particular, these flares involve asthma. There are a couple other studies that have been done in this area. Most notably in 2008, there's a nice study on EGPA without poor prognostic factors. They randomized 72 patients to corticosteroids, and then they got azathioprine versus mycophenolate. The most important thing from this study is one of the graphs they showed that demonstrated disease-free survival over time. In this group of patients without poor prognostic factors, at one year, 70% had had disease-free survival. It's a pretty high rate of relapse among patients who were otherwise pretty healthy. At five years, only half of patients were remission-free. What do I mean by poor prognostic factors? Well, in eGPA, the five-factor score is a relatively useful way to stratify patients. The five factors are age greater than 65, cardiac insufficiency, renal insufficiency, gastrointestinal involvement, or the absence of ENT manifestations, because that actually is associated with a worse prognosis. Having them is a better thing. Another thing we should know before we go on is the BVAS. This is the Birmingham Vasculitis Activity Score. It's essentially a scorecard to tell you how bad vasculitis is. It grades patients on 10 different realms, general, cutaneous, ENT, chest, cardiovascular, etc. And you just say whether or not there is a persistence of the symptom or a new and worsening of the symptom. The score is out of 63 and has been used in eGPA and MPA. We all know that eosinophil granulomatosis polyangiitis has eosinophils. Whenever you see an abnormal lab value, you always wonder to yourself, is this a symptom or is this a cause? In eGPA, eosinophils are thought to be a cause. They release a lot of pro-inflammatory mediators, such as granule-derived basic proteins, lipidated mediators, cytokines, and chemokines. Now, IL-5 is the only known eosinophilopoietin. It's kind of a hard word to wrap your head around, but it basically means that IL-5 stimulates eosinophil production, maturation, recruitment, differentiation, survival, and a host of other important activities. Therefore, it made sense to try to attack IL-5. Intermepolizumab, an IL-5 inhibitor. So let's talk about the methods. This was a randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind, parallel group, phase 3 trial at 31 academic centers. Before we go on, I should note that this is the first industry-sponsored drug study that I'm going to do. There's a couple characteristics of these studies that are worth noting. For one, they tend to be relatively well-designed. These people are designing trials that need to pass FDA muster, and so they don't mess around. They also tend to be very specific. They pick a slice of the population where they think they could show some benefit, and then they study that slice intensively. This means that some of these trials aren't as easily extended to other groups. So, patients in this study were screened from weeks 1 through 4. At week 4, there was a baseline visit. At the baseline visit, patients either received mepolizumab at 300 milligrams. This is three times the dose that had been used in other trials, but... In some of the earlier studies on mepolizumab in eGPA, they used 750 milligrams, so it's kind of in between. 
Patients were then compared to standard care, which was glucocorticoids plus minus immunosuppression. Steroids were tapered at the discretion of blinded physicians according to a pre-specified taper schedule. Physicians were also blinded to white cell counts to limit the risk of unblinding. At 52 weeks of therapy, patients were then discontinued and continued for eight weeks on not an open label, but actually a discontinuation arm. Inclusion criteria were relatively good. You needed to be 18 years of age, you have a diagnosis of eGPA, but you needed to have it for more than six months. So this wasn't patients who just presented. Steroid doses had to be stable, but they could be anywhere from 75 to 50 milligrams, which I like. It's pretty broad, which means you won't have too much trouble applying this to a patient who comes to you already on steroids. Patients need to have added no additional therapies for at least one month prior to visit, but they could be on other immunosuppressions. EGBA was defined as a history of asthma, eosinophilia greater than 10%, plus two or more critical typical criteria. These were defined as histopathologic evidence, perivascular infiltration, pulmonary infiltrates, sinonasal abnormalities, cardiomyopathies, glomerulonephritis, alveolar hemorrhage. So you could have all sorts of disease manifestations, and if you had two, then you qualified. That being said, you couldn't make it into the trial if these had caused organ or life-threatening disease within three months prior to start. So that means that you could have alveolar hemorrhage, but you can't have just recently had alveolar hemorrhage. EGPA and MPA were also excluded for good reason. There were two primary endpoints, the first being total accrued weeks of remission, the second being the proportion of patients in remission at 36 and 48 weeks. Remission was defined as a BVAS score of zero and less than four milligrams of prednisone per day. Secondary endpoints were remission at 24 to 52 weeks, time to first relapse, and doses of prednisone that were stratified by various categories. Relapse was defined as a BVAS greater than 3, active asthma, or active sinus disease leading to steroid greater than 4, increased immunosuppression, or hospitalization. I always have mixed feelings when they do things like this. This meant that a relapse could be something really benign, some small cutaneous finding that could arise, or a light asthma flare. At the same time, relapse could be a hospitalization. It could be disease leading to increase of immunosuppression. So it's nice because they defined essentially any recurrence of disease as a relapse, but it's also bad because in a way you didn't know exactly what you were getting with a relapse. Statistics were generally good. They needed 130 patients for 90% power to detect a 29% difference. Again, drug study. These people know what they're doing and they usually do a pretty good job of this. Analysis was done by intention to treat and included all patients who were randomized and got at least one dose of drug or placebo. Again, drug study. They know what they're doing. All the rest of the statistics were generally acceptable in my opinion. The study ran from 2014 to 2015. 150 patients were assessed for eligibility, and 136 of whom underwent randomization. 68 were assigned to receive placebo, and 68 were assigned to receive mepolizumab. All of those wound up being included in the intention-to-treat analysis. In the placebo group, 9 patients discontinued. 3 withdrew from the top trial, 3 had a lack of efficacy, and two met protocol-defined stopping criteria, which I think were LFT abnormalities. Fewer discontinued in the mepolizumab group, five patients. Again, two withdrew, one met protocol-defined stopping, and two had adverse events. So let's talk about the results. The average patient in this trial was 50 years old. Generally, they were female. Not many had ANCA positivity, only about 10%. All of them had elevated eosinophils, 
and the BVAS score greater than zero was something around half. So about half of patients had some manifestation of vasculitis at the time they entered this trial. Immunosuppressive therapy at baseline was common. 60% of patients in the mepolizumab group and 46% in the placebo group were already on some sort of immunosuppression. The most common characteristics of EGPA <sighs> included asthma with eosinophilia, because by definition you had to have that to be in the trial, so that was 100%, but then cyanonasal abnormalities in about 90% in both arms, and about half had neuropathy, and about three quarters had non-fixed pulmonary infiltrates. Cardiomyopathy was present in 10 to 20%, 10% in the placebo group, 20% in the mepolizumab group. It's important because cardiomyopathy is one of the bad prognostic factors for this disease. 75% of patients had a relapsing disease, and 50% had a refractory disease. So what did they find? Here's where their funky endpoint comes back to bite you. So remember, they defined their primary endpoint as remission at some point. The number of patients who had no weeks of remission in the mepolizumab group was 47%. The number of patients who had no weeks of remission in the placebo group was 81%. That's impressive. It's a number needed to treat of just over three. The other primary endpoint, remission at week 36 and 48, was 32% in the mepolizumab group and 3% in the placebo group. Again, that's pretty impressive. A third of patients who got mepolizumab went into remission by the weeks 36 and 48, and only 3% of patients in the placebo group were in remission. It's also kind of a bummer when you think that in this disease, without mepolizumab, only 3% of patients will be in remission after 48 weeks. Remember, though, this is with their definition of remission, which was pretty inclusive. A BVAS score of just one, that means any manifestation of vasculitis, would put you out of remission. Regarding the other endpoints, remission within the first 24 weeks that was sustained until week 52 was met by 1 in 5 patients in the mepolizumab group and basically zero in the placebo group. Overall, that's not bad. I like a number needed to treat of three. There's one other interesting find that deserves note. Patients with a higher eosinophil count were more likely to have remission. Also, this did act as a good steroid-sparing agent. 44% receiving mepolizumab versus 7% in the placebo group were down to less than 4 milligrams of placebo by the end of the trial. Another important question was adverse events. In this trial, in the mepolizumab group, 97% had an adverse event, but 94% in the placebo group had an adverse event. I think that speaks to the fact that a lot of the adverse events of EGPA could look like an adverse event of the drug. The investigators tried to stratify this by saying how many were thought to be secondary to the trial agent and how many were thought to be not. When you do that, 51% of patients in the mepolizumab group and 35% in the placebo group had some sort of event. The most common events were asthma. So what should we take from this trial? There's a number of important limitations. For one, it wasn't powered to assess for death. There's no assessment of patient quality of life or patient-centric outcomes. And like I said, their definition of relapse or remission was pretty broad. Essentially, any symptom of vasculitis would be considered a relapse. Another problem is, like I said, this is a very closely selected population. I call them sick-ish. You couldn't really apply this to healthy people because healthy people wouldn't have gotten into the study. You can't apply it to patients who present for the first time with EGPA because you had to have greater than six months of disease. And you couldn't really be that sick. If you'd had organ-threatening disease within the last three months, you were excluded. 
Another point is that a lot of these patients had had disease for a long time. So some of the things driving the BVAS might have been chronic damage. There's also a low rate of incapacitivity, which tells you again about how this was a very carefully selected population. And almost half of patients didn't go into remission. This is no magic bullet. And there was nothing really correlated with this finding. There's no way to select these patients and know who to give it to. They also did not publish the five-factor score. And remember, the BVAS wasn't really specifically designed for EGPA. All that being said, this is not a bad trial. They met their primary endpoints. They had a number needed to treat of 3 to 4 for a number of good endpoints, such as having someone in remission by week 36 and 48. And the side effect profile was pretty impressive. It's generally well tolerated. So, based on this and some other evidence, the FDA went on to approve meplizumab for EGPA. So you can probably get this approved for your patients. A couple take-home points. If I had a patient with EGPA who had been refractory or relapsed into disease, I would definitely consider EGPA. What I'm not sure of is how far I would extend this into patients who are healthier, so if I have a patient who's just presenting with a low five-factor score, or into patients who are sicker, a patient in the intensive care unit with DAH or some other significant complication. I suspect we'll wind up using it in those cases, which is why drug companies design studies like this. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure to come back next week when we flash back to the RIM trial in a discussion of myositis and rituximab. Remember, if you'd like to stay attuned to updates, you can follow us at JB Room and be sure to subscribe to us on however you get your podcasts. Thanks again and have a great week.